In this podcast, I interview two pioneers in making food healthy from the soil up. Bob Quinn is a botanist with a PhD in plant biochemistry who helped convert thousands of acres across Montana to grow ancient grains, kamut, organically. He was the first in Montana to mill whole grain, organic flour, starting in 1986. By 1991, he had certified his entire three-generation family wheat and cattle ranch as organic. He continues to experiment to improve regenerative organic systems and find better ways to grow dry land vegetables, fruit trees and berries in Montana, not only rebuilding the soil, but also the farming community for the benefit of health for all. Uh, my second guest, and we're going to be talking together, is Tim Parton, and he's a farm manager in South Staffordshire in the UK. Tim farms in a biological way to maximize the value of nutrition to get the best out of the crops. He doesn't use insecticides, seed treatments, growth regulators, or, or fungicides. Um, as when the plant is balanced, the need for synthetic inputs drops away. Tim has won numerous awards, including Soil Farmer of the Year 2017, Arable Innovator of the Year 2019, Sustainable Farmer of the Year 2019, and Innovation Farmer of the Year 2020. And together, we're going to explore the journey between the soil and your health and why soil degeneration and modern farming practices are partly responsible for the decline in mental and physical health. We will also explore the fundamental principles of regenerative farming and gardening. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. So starting with you, Bob, um, you're in Montana. How's the weather? Well, the, the calendar says spring, but the uh, if you look outside, it says winter. So we're still having snow, but we're very thankful for it because we've had three years of drought and it looks very promising this coming year with uh, more snow than way more than average. So we're very thankful. And I know you're sort of quite famous uh, for growing Khorasan, also known as Kamut. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that story, because I think you've got a few thousand acres uh, established on that one. Well, uh, the first time I ever saw this grain was at the county fair and when I was in high school in about 1963 or so. And it was a giant wheat that had reportedly come out of a tomb in Egypt and everybody thought it was quite a novelty and people were growing it around the county for fun. And But no one had any market for it. It had kind of a low yield, but high protein. Um, so it's, it disappeared after, you know, the way most novelties do when they don't have a basis or other than interest. And when I was in college at um, UC Davis in California, I was reading a back of a package of corn nuts one afternoon and it said corn nuts is a snack food in America. It's quite popular. and It's made from a giant corn. And I thought, I wonder if these guys would be interested in giant wheat. So I called them up and they said, oh, sure, we'd be interested in that. And I called my dad and I said, dad, see if you can find some of that old King Tut's wheat. And he found about a half a pint jar and we sent me a couple of tablespoons and I sent it to Corn Nuts. And in a couple of weeks to talk to him again, they said, this is fantastic. We'll take 10,000 pounds right now. And I said, well, I don't really have 10,000 pounds. I, I didn't want to tell him I only had, you know, less than a, a pint. And I called my dad and I said, dad, plant all that in the in the garden right right away and so we did it was luckily springtime and and we planted it in montana in the spring and california in the fall so we got two crops a year uh for about three years we got up to about 50 pounds and then they called corn nuts and the guy that i talked to was gone they had no interest in it and it just sat in the shed in the corner until we went to a food show 
in California in about 1986. And my dad was showing it to everyone. And one person uh, came and said, oh, that's just what I'm looking for. So because of that, we planted a half acre in 1986. And 30 years later, we had over 100,000 acres growing in Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, and shipping most of it uh, to Italy. Um, and yeah, the they, reason, they yeah, love it for the pasta, don't they? It makes well, it it's a very close, it turned out to be a very close relative of Durham. And, um, and of course, uh, Durham is made in the pasta primarily. And the Italians uh, felt like it had the aroma and the flavor of something they once had and now it was gone and now it was returning. And so they really took off with it. And you only grow it organic and you only uh, certify it if it has enough minerals. In other words, the soil has to be good. Isn't that the case? Well, we are right. I'm, I'm an avid um, organic farmer. And so we like to promote that all I can. And so we, we registered a trademark, uh, the family did, or our family did, um, called Kamut, which is an ancient Egyptian word for wheat. And, and the trademark is not an ownership of the grain, but it's a guarantee to our customers. And one of the things we guarantee, or several things we guarantee, that, that it's always grown organically, it's always ancient grain, it's never mixed with any modern wheat, and it has a certain level of minerals and nutrients in it that comes, of course, from the soil that it's grown in. And, and we, we, we coach the farmers a little bit of, in building up their soils so that they have the organic system is well-tuned up and produces the, the quality that we're looking for. Yeah, and you kind of blew my mind because, I mean, this is an ancient wheat and, and we need to be clear on the terms here. It's genetically much simpler than modern wheat. Modern wheat is what we say is a hexaploid. Uh, yeah, this is true. Well, there are three types of wheat, um, depending on the, the number of, of um, genes that you have. You have hexaploid, which is three sets of chromosomes. And, and uh, in that group is spelt. So you can have an ancient hexaploid like spelt but the, the bread wheats are in that group. Then there's tetraploids with two, um, four sets of chromosomes, two pairs, and that group includes emmer and um, uh, durum and this coruscant, which we sell under the Kamuk um, trademark. And then you have a diploid, which has one pair of chromosomes, like all humans and most animals, well, all animals and most plants. And an example of that is einkorn. So those are the three different groups of wheat. And, and there's modern wheat in, in two of them, two out of three anyway. Yeah. And the interesting thing, and this is where you really blew my mind, is that, uh, you know, Khorasan, Kamut, it has gluten, no question about it. <laughs> yes. um, and yet you've run a couple of dozen studies now and certainly a dozen really good, you know, randomized, controlled uh, trials on irritable bowel syndrome, heart disease, diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver. Uh, basically, where people are eating, you know, the ancient grain or the modern wheat, both of which contain gluten. And yet in every single study that you've run, there is significant health benefit in the ancient wheat. And and this is really important, um, the inflammatory markers that you measure in the bloodstream uh, from the studies I've seen tend to drop by about 30 uh, percent mm -hmm. on the ancient wheat, uh, sometimes yeah. more. So in other words, the body reacts to this ancient but gluten containing grain in a very favorable way while it yes. reacts to modern wheat in an unfavorable way is that right that is absolutely correct we've done we published over 36 peer-reviewed journal articles and the last um, couple dozen as you mentioned are clinical uh, human clinical trials that we've done mostly in italy with the um uh university of bologna and the teaching research hospital in florence and um 
the Italians were very, very interested to know why their people couldn't eat wheat. In America, you know, we just say, well, we can go wheat-free, gluten-free, all this stuff. Rather than going to the crux of the problem and trying to figure out what's has happened, because, you know, we built ancient civilizations for eons, and then all of a sudden in the last 60 years, 20%, up to 20% of the people in our country, at least in America, cannot uh, enjoy wheat without some kind of a difficulty in digestion or whatever. And what they have done is change the gluten, primarily, I think, for the bread, the benefit of the, of the makers of uh, the American white air bread, I like to call it. Um, and then what they wanted to do is have more air captured in that those gluten cells, uh, protein cells that uh, form during fermentation. And the more air you can have, the more bread you can sell, you know, for the, you're selling air for the price of bread. It's uh, amazing. Um, and, and the goal is to make more bread with less wheat. And they've changed it so much that no one expected anything negative to happen, but they changed the gluten so much that a lot of people have trouble digesting it now. And this is part of the problem. And uh, yeah, some people will remember Nimble Bread, which was brilliant. Uh, she flies like a bird in the sky. It was this very, very light loaf. And the idea is you'd lose weight eating a light loaf because most of it was air. So it cost less to make, but it was sold for more money. Uh, because you would lose weight. So brilliant marketing. Now, I came and visited you in Montana. I have to say the rodeo was seriously good fun. And uh, your your uh, your sort of back garden, which is really large, uh, I noticed that you had tons of different apple trees growing. You're, you're always researching and trying to find out what works. Is that the case? I am. You know, I, when people say it can't be done here, that's when I really get excited and start trying it. Um, I think we really need to focus on more and more local food production. And of course, Montana, we, it's not noted for vegetable production at all. We are a wheat and cattle state. But I found we can grow dryland vegetables without irrigation on 12 to 13 inches of water, of rainfall, of moisture every year. And it can be done. And uh, if we can revitalize some of our rural communities by um, having the food growing closer to home and processed closer to home in a, in a minimal way, I think everybody wins in that sort of a scenario. And just before we switch to Tim, just tell us a little bit about the community, because I remember you saying how the community got decimated uh, by the consequence of modern farming and monoculture yeah. and how you've helped to bring the community back to life. Well, <laughs> I don't know if it's quite back to life, but over the last... Uh, Oh, 50 or 60 years. Well, since World War II, the American government's goal has been twofold in terms of food in that it's cheap and it's plentiful. And actually, they've accomplished both of those with uh, the industrial model of uh, farming and agriculture based on chemical, um, chemical agriculture. And so we have increased our yields. Uh, we lowered the cost of food substantially, but there's a very high cost for this cheap food. And uh, so guess who's paying it? Well, the farmers are paying it to start with. Half of my neighbors, uh, Patrick, are gone, gone broke. And so they're out of business. So they're, they're, they've left the neighborhood. They tell their kids, don't even think about coming back to farm because there's no future in it. They'll never make a living here. And when that many farmers leave, the downtown area, the community they support also starts to fail because they're not there to support it anymore. So my little town, the Big Sandy, which is in North Central Montana, just south of the Alberta-Saskatchewan border, about 70 miles or so, um, has gone from 1,000 in the 60s uh, when I was in high school down to 600 now. And uh, so what I've tried to do is um, bring back 
um, local um, processing. So in our farm, we, we grow and process uh, high oleic safflower oil. Um, we have a snack company that we process um, our, our ancient wheat in the snacks. And uh, we've been able to increase the population by 5.3%, Patrick. So it's not really quite back to where it was, but it's, it's going in a positive direction again. So I'm thrilled about that. And I think that could be repeated all over America and wherever rural um, uh, countrysides are in decline. Mm. But that's not just your grandchildren, is it? No, <laughs> no, I don't have any of my grandchildren here on the farm with me yet. So these are all people we've brought in and it's not, a, you know, it's not, I'm not working my grandkids and all my businesses to death for nothing. You know, that there's a name for that. So I try to avoid that and bring in some people that can add to the community. And they, they brought their own families. That's how the population has grown. So the population of school has increased. And that's been a really fun and a very positive thing. Fantastic. Now, Tim. Uh, you were a conventional farmer, isn't that the case? Yeah, that's the case. Yeah, conventional till um, two thousand and nine. And uh, so, you know, what was it that kind of got you to wake up? And what are you doing now? How? What's the, what was that whole transition about? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I'd always had a passion for soil. Soil is life. It gives us food. It gives us clean water. It gives us the air that we breathe. And I could never understand why we were abusing it so much as farmers. We, high tillage and loads of synthetic inputs. So in 2009, I, I started to go to strip tillage, so I was moving less soil. Um, and then in 2012, I started to play around with biology. Um, I replaced nitrogen with nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and everywhere I re reduced nitrogen by 40 kilos to the hectare, I'd got an extra ton of, of wheat to that hectare. And it was just a light bulb moment that biology is get, was giving me the, has got all the answers. We just haven't asked the right questions as farmers. Um, and then in 2015, I went to, to zero till, so I don't move any soil at all. Um, I class myself as a biological nutrition farmer, so I'm always keeping that plant balanced nutritionally. I do a lot of sap testing, which is just like having a blood test, so I know exactly what's happening within that plant if we're going through a dry period or a cold period and the soil biology isn't providing enough uh, nutrition, I can step in and do foliars. Foliars are five times more efficient. So it's just keeping that plant balanced. Um, and I, I grow 50-50 winter to spring cropping. So I grow, I do grow million wheats, but close your ears, Patrick, but uh, I also grow canola and then I'll grow malting barley. I'll grow spring malting barley, spring wheat. Spring oats, spring lupins, I grow cornflowers, corn marigolds, which are flowers, but always getting that cover crop in there. So always getting that liquid carbon back into the soil because um, carbon is everything. Um, so I'm always getting that carbon back and always making every decision on soil health. And that's how I've managed to get rid of my synthetic inputs and get that symbiosis going on in the soil. You get that symbiosis going on with the fungi and the bacteria, everything becomes available. The plant can extract what it wants and we've got healthier food. You know, we are what we eat at the end of the day and, and I can produce healthier food, but I'm also healing the planet along the way. Farmers to me, we're the heroes of the world because we can provide healthy food. We can heal the planet, which is going to provide a healthy population. And what got you into nutrition? Have you always been into nutrition? Um, what got me really into nutrition, Patrick, was I had a, a bout of anxiety, depression. My wife worked in, in works in the mental health industry, and she didn't want me to go down the, the drug route. She, she was a big advocate of, of, of nutrition and being balanced. So she, she took me down to your brain bio center in London, 
Uh, we both got tested because my wife was intrigued to see how her body was balanced. And lo and behold, once I'd got my nutrition right and, and got everything balanced in me, I healed myself. And the, the other interesting fact, because we both got nutrition right, we, we conceived our first child, which my wife is always adamant that that was part of the journey. <laughs> That's a, a great story. Now, one thing you mentioned is no till. It just sort of came out of there because our conventional view of farming, you know, we imagine the tractor and the plow and the tilling and turning up the earth. And, you know, the, the idea is at the end of your growing season, I've got a little vegetable garden, you turn everything over and you, you know, recompost and all that sort of stuff. And you've just said no till. So, uh, yeah, uh, and maybe I can just throw in there, We've everyone's nuts about the microbiome, uh, you know, the terrain inside our gut. Uh, so what's this parallel between the microbiome in the gut and the soil? And why are you not tilling? Um, the main reason for not tilling, one, I don't want to release that carbon into the atmosphere. I want to keep it into the soil where it belongs. But the other sort of thing is I want to get a, a high fungal soil. So I want a one-to-one fungal to bacteria soil. Well, mine are probably two-to-one, one-and-a-half-to-one fungi to bacterial now because the mycorrhizal fungi, it, it can do so much for us. It's been here for, for millions of years, but mycorrhizal fungi will bring water from, from one plant to another. I think the, the largest one is something like 10,000 square miles. It's massive. And it'll also, if one plant's been attacked by a pest, it will send a signal to tell the other plants to, to start and protect themselves that there's a pest around. But fungi really doesn't like interaction. It doesn't like disturbance. Um, so I don't want to do that. I always use the analogy. It's like somebody, if you're using a plow, it's like somebody putting a ball and chain through your house. And then just as you start to lay a few bricks and start to build again, somebody puts a ball and chain through again and it can never reestablish itself. So I'm just trying to get that biome working as much as I can. So did you just say that, that those fungi can be as far reaching as 10,000 miles? No. I'm sure it's as big as that. I'm sure yeah. it was 10,000 square miles. It's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's in, a, it's in the States, the largest one, but it's it's it might be 2,000 square miles. I, I can't, don't quote me on that one, big. but it's certainly it's, a massive area. It's, but it's, it's that fungi I'm trying to yeah. get that interaction with. Yeah, I read that wonderful book, Entangled Life, uh, by uh, Merlin Sheldrake. That kind of fantastic read. Yeah, it's very, very good. So, Bob. Um, microbiome in the soil. Uh, what's your take? It's really important. It's just as important for the soil as the microbiome is for our gut. And it's I, I love the way you mentioned them both together because they really are uh, very similar in their nature. And so we have a gut uh, in Montana in the upper Great Plains of uh, of the um, high prairie, short grass prairie. We haven't got the no-till figured out, but we certainly have done reduced tillage. And we don't plow anything. We mostly cultivate with shallow, um, undercutting um, uh, shovels that go under the ground oh, an inch and a half or two inches or so. And some some reports now and some studies have shown that that is not a, a very significant disturbance to the most of the micro uh, the microbiome in the soil. Uh, certainly, is some disturbance, but we try to min minimize that, and we with our certified organic um, program, which is also regenerative. We have a nine year rotation on our farm growing out of those nine years, five years of, of cover or of um, cash crops, which we sell like wheat and oil seeds and alfalfa and barley and 
legumes like lentils or chickpeas. And then we have four years of just soil building crops that we don't harvest at all. We, we um, uh, work them back into the soil in, the, in, in those four years. And those are legumes like alfalfa, sweet clover, um, peas, and lentils. And sometimes we'll put in a buckwheat, which isn't a legume either, but it has other uh, beneficial additions. So that's how we're feeding our soil, Patrick, uh, four years out of nine, and and then um, harvesting it uh, five years out of nine. So really, it's it's all about getting that soil super healthy. And of course, um, you know, and I know, but maybe not everyone knows the story of the Dust Bowl ballads, taking me back to Woody Guthrie, because the idea there was... <laughs> you know, plow all the land and what happened? Just give us the sort of two minute version of. Well, so the land was all plowed and left a bear. And then when it didn't rain in the early thirties, we started into a prolonged drought and when nothing grew. And so the, the land was completely uh, nude and, and barren. And then when the dust, when the, when the winds started coming, we had dust from Kansas and, and the prairies of America that, that uh, clouded the skies over Washington, D.C., over 2,000 miles away. Um, that got Congress <laughs> asking questions. But um, we still had um, fences, even when I was growing up, that were built on top of fences, where, where um, drifts of dirt had blown into the fence lines and covered them up. And so people were forced to build uh, fences on top of fences to keep the cows in. Um, so it, it was devastating. And now... Because of that, you don't see any plowing anymore on the prairies, really, um, uh, in the western prairies. And um, people have planted um, tree lines to break the wind and uh, farmed in strips um, uh, to um, break up the patterns of fallow and, and seeded ground. Now, we all think in terms of, you know, car exhaust and uh, industry generating uh, you know, carbon, but actually the capture of carbon in the soil is a very big part of the whole carbon story, isn't it? Do either of you guys have some figures on that, the importance of farming in a way that brings carbon into the soil? Well, I think Tim mentioned about the reduction of carbon due to tillage. And when you're plowing, you can imagine what kind of loss you're getting. Um, most of the organic matter, well, I would say almost half or more, or has been lost. And mm -hmm. by reduced tillage or no tillage and growing um, a cover crops or uh, soil building crops, you are introducing organic matter, hence carbon, back into those soils. The carbon sequestration becomes a very important contribution that regenerative organic and, and biological farmers can make to the, to the climate chaos that we find ourselves in because of all the, the uh, greenhouse gases and everything and carbon dioxide being a chief one. And that can be um, reversed in part by putting that carbon back in the soil by growing crops and plants that put it back in the soil and not harvesting everything. Now, Tim, you've converted a few farmers into this regenerative, no-till, uh, healthy way of farming, haven't you? I certainly have, yeah. <clears throat> I'm a, a big advocate and I help an awful lot of people. And uh, it, as Bob just said, the key to my system is those cover crops and getting those liquid exudates back into the soil. 80% of organic matter is coming back from that growing plant. Um, and, and that's where we gain our organic matter and that's a stable organic matter. So it's, the cover crops are key. It's putting those liquid exudates down, which is then going to feed that biology. And then the whole process starts to cycle. And that's when the real nutrition comes available. And then we can move the whole system forward and 
lower the inputs and, and farm in a healthy way then. And the more carbon we can get into the soil, the more water we're going to hold. Our infiltration rates go up. So I infiltrate normally about an inch of water every 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 um, six minutes. So I can hold a lot more. So when we have these dry summers that we've been having in the UK, my crops will keep growing because I've just got that carbon sponge of water there to, to keep those plants moving forward. And how many farmers have you, have you influenced? Oh, I wouldn't be able to count them, Patrick. It's many, many. I speak all around the world on the subject, so uh, I've influenced an awful lot. Um, I, I, I don't keep count. I just help anybody that's on the journey, and I'm always happy to help because everybody's got to do this. We, we can't keep destroying the planet in which we live. There is no planet B. This is all we've got, and it's down to every inhabitant on this planet to start and respect the planet, but demand food produced in a regenerative way so that they can be part of the story of healing the planet in which we live, because there is no planet B. It's all we've got. And we've done so much damage to the planet. We've done so much damage to ourselves. It's time to readdress that. To me, it's no coincidence that as synthetics went up on soil post-Second World War, farmers were asked to produce food. We did that because of all the, the, uh, the war bomb-making machines. Nitrogen was readily available. They found a way of using that. They put it onto our land. We had loads and loads of food, but it was low-nutrient food. It, it was just empty calories that we've been feeding ourselves. So as those synthetic inputs have gone up, human health has gone down, and you can just track it all the way through, as you're well aware. So let's talk about that quantity and quality. You're now farming in a different way. Um, is it less profitable? Do you get less food production? No, I, I, my yields have gone up um, and my quality's gone up. It's um, I um, Last year, for instance, my best yield, I achieved 12 tonnes to the hectare off 50 kilos of applied um, ammonium sulphate and then just topped up with a little bit of foliar, say 28 litres, which mm. is an, an amide end. So it's just it's one step behind an amino acid. So that plant hasn't got to use much energy to be able to convert it into an amino acid and into protein. So it's far more efficient. It's not polluting the planet. And I'm achieving high yields. So 12 tonne to the hectare, it cost me £80 a tonne to produce. So you can do the math. It works out very quick that I'm a profitable farm. Mm. Uh, I mean, we obviously don't know those figures. What would the average farmer be achieving? I think the average for the UK is probably eight tonnes to the hectare, eight and a half tonnes to the hectare. Mm-hmm. So you're like, you know, a good 30% up uh, and doing something good for the planet, you know? Oh, definitely. I mean, I also, I have a, a bird ringing group come on farm, which a bird ringing group, they, they, they net, they catch the birds, they weigh them, they assess their health and they put a ring on. So if they're a migratory bird, we can see where they're going in the world and we can start to get more and more information. And I'll never forget the first day they came here to see me because they go out at night with a thermal imaging camera to catch ground nesting birds such as skylarks, which are red data species now due to our farming practices. And they were leaving the floor. They were that excited because they'd never seen bird life like it. And all the red data species that we've got on farm are thriving here now because we've got the food. It's the best restaurant in town because the whole ecosystem is working. I also catch moths for Rothamsted, the, the research centre. And I've got moths equivalent to a woodland situation here, and they've never seen that on an arable farm. So the food source is there for all along the food train. We, the whole ecosystem has got food, which is why everything is thriving on farm. You know, we've reared 14 kestrels, another red data species on farm, because we put net, nest boxes up all around farm. So 
we can monitor and encourage the bird life back. So as a farmer, there is nothing not to like. It's it, We're making more money. We're doing our bit for the planet. We're producing healthy food. It's just a win-win. And what happens to the quality of food in terms of nutritional content? And both for you and Tim and Bob, let's talk about how farming in a different way changes the quality and what effect that has then on us for our health. What I'll just jump in on that one, Patrick. What I do, I've got now, I've got a, a bio-nutrient meter that Dan Ketteridge has developed in the States. And I'm starting now to measure the polyphenols and the antioxidants in the food that I'm producing. So I can start to really build and hopefully then sell for a higher price that I am producing a healthier food that people want to eat. And it's actually going to improve you know, their, their own being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bob, you've done a fair bit of research on the nutrient quality in food. Yes, and, and um, what Tim's mentioned it, I agree with him 100%. Um, the biggest difference we see probably is the polyphenol concentration, and maybe not so much in the concentration as the diversity of them. That's what we saw. The total didn't go up so much, but the diversity um, did go up. And and that translates into health um, benefits, because the more diverse the system is, the more stable it is, the more the body can respond to its needs to the has different needs for different times. And if you have a, far, a great diversity in something like polyphenols, I think that that's a, just nothing positive. One, one thing that I think that we really lack, and I've talked to, to Dan Kittrich a little bit, but what we've seen in our research, what I would like to see develop is a some kind of a, a nutritional index or maybe an anti-inflammatory index. We've seen, and you mentioned the anti-inflammatory um, properties of the Kamut, organic Kamut, um, was um, the biggest difference between that and modern uh, modern wheat. Um, and if we could label foods with a nutritional index that was a, uh, somehow correlated to living systems and living cells, rather than just guessing which compounds are are giving us the, the best um, you know advantage, then, because we don't have to know then what what works and what doesn't work, but there's also synergy involved between different types of compounds and, and elements and molecules in your in your body. That together they produce a better result. And if we can figure out how to label our foods, and then um, then buyers have would have incentive to pay more and buy more of higher nutrition food because they'd be saving so much at the doctor's office. They wouldn't be sick all the time. We have in, in, in our country, in America, there's 60% of the population has at least one chronic disease. I, I, I don't know how, know how they can call that success. And 40% have two or more chronic diseases. And, it, and the pattern just keeps increasing. I mean, the, the disease just keeps increasing. So that's a, that is a, a dead-end road, that's, <laughs> literally. And it'll, it'll be the ruination of us, not only of the planet, because we're destroying that, but we're destroying the health of our people along the way. Yeah, I mean, here in the UK, we have a five a day policy, and that is someone of my age, 65, is on five different medications. Uh, it's uh, meant to be, you know, five servings of fruit and veg, which, by the way, is too little. It's uh, we certainly were eating a lot more than that. But the point is, you can pick up a carrot and it's uh, almost translucent. I mean, you know, hold it up to the light and you can see through it. Uh, well, the carrots that I get growing in my garden, I mean, they're they're really solid and the flavor is so different. So yeah. that's the big problem, isn't it? You know, we're told to eat a tomato or a carrot or some lettuce. Uh, but, the, you know, you can tell very quickly from the taste quality that you're getting 
you know, much less nutrients. And I believe that sometimes it's kind of like forced growth. So you've got more water, but you've got less dry matter. That was the whole issue about organic food. You're getting more nutrients. Is right. That- and more and more um, uh, compounds that um, uh, the plants are producing because of the health of the soil. Mm. And, and, and the flavor, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that gives the, the people, the eaters, a real tip off of the nutritional value of their food. They don't have to have any big fancy um, analysis. They can smell it, the aromas, the natural aroma and the natural flavor. That's before it's all doctored up with some kind of um, processing additives. But what right out of the garden, right out of the store, if you can, if it smells nice and it tastes nice or, or delicious or really good, it probably is really good for you because most of those flavors and aromas are coming from secondary metabolites such as polyphenols and other things that are important for antioxidants and um, and anti-inflammatory properties in your body. I totally agree with you there, Bob. I, I've um, People have lost their use of their senses to smell and know what good food is because they've just lost it. They just haven't paid food that attention and respect that it deserves. Yep. You know, we spend a lot more on um, on entertainment. I mean, a very significant <laughs> proportion of income is spent on entertainment and much less on food. And of course, food is is what we're made of. And, you know, there also lies a problem is that, you know, urban folk. And I went to a future confidence uh, a conference and I think by 2040, two thirds of the world's population is living in cities and wow. they're not used to food that might not you know, be completely consistent in its shape. They're not used to, uh, you know, eating raw foods. They're, they're just, you know, it's the beige phenomena where if, if children are brought up eating processed foods, they're kind of scared of anything that doesn't quite conform. You know, how do we deal with that? Well, I think we need to start with the, with the elementary students and have gardens in every school mm-hmm. and have those kids out there planting those gardens, uh, tending those gardens, harvesting those gardens, and then taking that food into the kitchen, into the school kitchens and having it cooked up. Uh, when that's done in America, I mean, kids that never would eat vegetables all of a sudden now are eating them because they grew them. They've taken ownership. They're taking pride in that. And if, it'll take a long time to change a whole generation, but I think that's where we start. We start with the kids and, um, they, and, and make it fun and make it educational. I totally agree with you, Bob, because the more you can get that interaction, the respect comes for food. And as you say, once you've grown it yourself, they they want to eat it because they've seen it grow. They've seen how it's evolved in that soil and and matured. And then to have that flavor straight from from the garden, from the soil to the fork, you can't beat that experience. That's what life is all about. (laughs) Now, this uh, podcast was called The Soil, Food, Gut, brain super highway and obviously we're hearing a lot of no-brainers here as well and we've spoken a fair bit about the soil and the food i think bob you wanted to say something about seeds well i did because oftentimes we hear you know good uh, healthy soil makes healthy food makes healthy um uh, people and the, the missing connection in that chain and i believe in that chain is very important but you can start with less than good seed you can start with modern wheat for example and put it through the best of all that chain has to offer and still come up with something that people have trouble eating so i think we need to add to that concept the idea of starting with good seed 
um, seed that hasn't been um, adulterated and, and changed just for the purpose of, of getting bigger yields or, or a fancier shape or whatever. Um, but make sure that that seed has, can produce food of high nutrition, has the potential for that. And then you add those other things that you mentioned, and then you have the complete picture. I think that that would be the um, ideal thing that I'd like to promote anyway. And if you've got a garden and you go out to buy seeds, do you just buy organic seeds? I mean, Tim, are there any uh, kind of good tips for how to get the right seeds if you're growing your own food? I'd, I'd like to save my own seed because I'm a big believer in epigenetics. So that plant is always improving for the next generation to improve, to, to carry on that. So I always like to keep my own seed. And then you've also got the endophytes on that seed. So the biology has already been set on that seed to go straight back in the environment that it was bred from, that it was derived from. So I like to keep my own seed and just keep improving that way using epigenetics. And are there some good suppliers? If you've got to start somewhere, of course, if you're growing. Um, I, 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 I trust different suppliers, so I'll go for them. But once I've got it, I'll, I'll keep it myself. The problem I had as, as a farmer when I started off on this journey, I would order some new seed undressed that there was no fungicides on there or anything. And inevitably, it would always turn up. They'd put a dressing on. They couldn't be bothered <laughs> to switch the machine off, which used to infuriate me. But... On the, on the opposite of that, it really gave me an opportunity to show how my home safe seed, I'd grow them side by side in the same field at the same seeds per square metre. I do a lot of biology, so I brew up biology, so it has a biological dressing on. And where it had got that fungicidal dressing on, the seed was 10 days later to germinate. It was slow. It was behind my seed all the way through the growing season. And it just proved how I was putting... Having that fungicide seed treated there was putting a barrier to stop that symbiosis going on between the natural biology and the soil. And it was it was a real learning curve for me. Mm. And, and I couldn't agree with Tim more. And the other thing that that he didn't say that it's from um, just uh, extraction is that for people who are out there ordering garden seeds, make sure that you're avoiding GMOs and avoiding um, hybrids because you can't save those seeds and expect the same thing back. So um uh, if all possible if they can um try heirloom seeds those are guaranteed not to be hybridized and then do what tim's doing and, and try several different varieties and see what works best for you and then save those seeds I, that's what i would suggest also i totally agree bob because it's a farmer's right to keep your own seed and you know i just hate hybrids for that reason they're derived to stop you being able to save and improve that plant on your own farm and it really annoys me that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you can ask a lot of seed dealers have the choices now of buying seeds that are not treated or dressed, as you say. Um, that always doesn't happen, as you also said, but at least we can ask for it. And um, I haven't used chemicals on my farm now since uh, uh, the late 80s, and um, everything is working very well and uh, without them. And I think it's that's the first thing we need to show and tell people that it is possible because that's not what they're being taught all their life in the universities and the government. Um, uh, those that are promoting this industrial chemical agriculture, they're saying you can't do it without it, but that's not true. And I think the more we can tell our story, and Patrick, I really appreciate your being able to put us on the air and, and share that with more people because the more people that can hear it, maybe they'll start to believe it huh, and believe there's an alternative to this chemical industrial model. 
that were talking being about story, talking about stories and seeds. Tell us the story of the siege of Stalingrad. Oh, all right. Well, I um, there's a fellow in Russia by the name of Vavilov, and he lived around. He was born, I think, in the late 1800s, and he became a great botanist. And so he ended up in um, St. Petersburg at the head of a, uh, of a land or a plant institute. And his goal in life was to end world hunger. And he went throughout the world and he, he wrote books of, of, of a series of evolution of plants. And he went to different um, centers where he believed different evolutions had begun. And he collected plants from all over the world, hoping to find a good enough plant stock that he could, uh, that Russia could grow their own food. And um, he um, got a little bit crosswise with, with um, uh, Stalin and was thrown in jail and died of starvation in a prison camp. So it's a great irony that the guy that wanted to end world hunger died of starvation. But meanwhile, back at the Institute um, in St. Petersburg, the, um, it wasn't well known that he had a huge seed bank there. And when the Nazis came and surrounded St. Petersburg with the the goal of, of course, defeating the city and taking over, defeating Russia. Um, they had the city under siege for uh, nearly three years. Three million people lived in that city at the beginning of that siege. One million died of starvation. One million escaped over the frozen oceans in the fall, in the winter. And one million just barely hung on to life. The people that were guarding those seed banks uh, didn't let it known that that was in, in the city because there was nothing to eat. And many of those people who are guarding those seeds actually started starve, died of starvation rather than eat the seeds they were protecting. It was an amazing, dramatic uh, story of um, devotion and, and duty. I thought it's amazing. And it didn't get bombed, did it? Because uh, it Oh, yes, that's the other part. <laughs> so the seed bank was right across the street from the Astoria Hotel where Hitler um, wanted to have his victory party. So he told his generals, do not block do not bomb this square where this hotel is. Of course, not knowing right across the street was the seed bank. And so that was the really the only block or the only portion of the city that wasn't heavily damaged with bombing. Okay, so we've covered uh, soil, seed, um, uh, uh, food. What about the gut? Can we say anything about food and the gut and these methods of growing food? Well, I can say something about that um, in, in my wheat research, at least, Patrick. What we've discovered is that a lot of the problems that, or well, at least some of them, some of the problems that people have and in the, in the, um, in, in what they describe as the problems they have with eating wheat is actually coming from eating uh, wheat tainted with glyphosate um, or Roundup. That's the brand name in America that we know this by. And this compound is sprayed on on wheat uh, sometimes at the very end of harvest to kill the weeds and ripen the, and kill the crop so it doesn't, so it can dry out and be harvested before uh, winter comes, before it starts to freeze in the snow, particularly as you go further north in Canada. And um, so it, it comes into the flour at, at a pretty high percent and it affects the, it, it doesn't affect the human cells and that's what the, the makers of glyphosate were bragging about. It doesn't affect mammals or humans. But it does affect plants. It kills them because it has a uh, interrupts a, a metabolic pathway that's essential to their life. But it also uh, interrupts the same metabolic pathway in many bacteria. And you know we have more bacterial cells in our gut than we have human cells in our body. And if you start 
um, interfering with those and making them sick or dying or killing them, then you're going to um, affect the health of the body in all different ways, Patrick. This it's not not well known the exact connections, but the secondary outcomes are just almost everywhere. And so that that is one thing that we can eliminate by the elimination of that kind of um, uh, chemical in our farming that would be a big help to us. And Tim, how do we get glyphosates removed? Because they're still being used in the UK, aren't they? Yeah, it is. I mean, you've, I agree with what Bob just said, and you've got to remember it was first uh, developed as a biological killer. That's what it was. Uh, it was a drain cleaner. So it's, it's not good for our gut health, in my opinion. I, I know. I think um, to desiccate a crop of wheat should should not be allowed. To think it can be sprayed and then two weeks later it's in the food chain. It's, it's it just shouldn't be allowed. I do use it to destroy cover crops. So shut your ears, Bob. Uh, but <laughs> the, the way I use it I'll, I'll use fulvic acid i'll use citric acid with it so i'm lowering the ph of the water which allows me to use a lower rate of the glyphosate but and then i'll use a fulvic acid which got a cation exchange capacity of, of 1400 so again i can lower the amount of glyphosate i'm using but then i'll always add some molasses to the to the spray that i'm going to use and then by adding the molasses any glyphosate that hits the soil it stimulates the biology and the biology actually eats it so the glyphosate doesn't hang around in my soil as long, um, and it goes. Um, if I could get away from using glyphosate, I would. I, I, One of the ways I try to destroy my cover crops, I'll get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'll roll when it's frosty, minus 4 and below, and I'll get 95% kill then on that cover crop. So I don't need to use the glyphosate. The other way I try to do, I use a crimper roller, uh, and I'll crimp the, the cover crop. And again, always trying to get away from using glyphosate. And then another way that I'm going to be trying this year is using an interrow mower. So I'll grow um, a, a cash crop, but in between the rows, I'll have some clover or something like that. And then I'll go in and top that so it'll release the nitrogen. But I'm also then not going to use herbicides so as I can harvest that crop without using herbicides by interrow mowing to keep any grass weeds down. Well, uh, Patrick, that gives me an idea. I think that uh, Tim and I should get together and uh, I can help him eliminate glyphosate and he can help me eliminate tillage. And um, I think we can come together some way and figure this out. And I think that'd be a great, fun activity. Okay. Sounds good to me, Bob. All right, let's go for that. Now, Tim, you kind of got into this through the link of the brain and mental health and the food, the nutrition. So, yeah, we've gone soil... Uh, uh, you know, seed, food, gut, brain. Uh, what what could we say about uh, you know the effects on the brain of all this better nutrition? Oh, there's so much we can say, isn't there? But it's we are what we eat, and it's having that right nutrition that the brain needs that right nutrition. And if we keep ourselves balanced, we we don't get ill, we don't get anxiety problems, we don't get health problems. In my mind, nutrition has got. Everything we need, it's just our food has been lacking in that nutrition to give us that healthy brain, to keep us on the straight and narrow, that we, we're not overstressed because we're eating proper food. We get, we're sleeping better because we're eating the proper food and the whole human body is functioning better. And you know what? I know I'm <laughs> talking on an open book here, but it's, it is so important. And it's up to us as farmers to produce that food, but it's up to consumers to demand that type of food to push the whole thing forward. Mm. Yeah. 
It reminds me, years ago, I was invited by the um, Irish Farmers Union to give a talk somewhere in, uh, I think, Wexford, uh, uh, somewhere in Ireland. And uh, I didn't really have much of a brief other than they were having a lot of uh, mental illness, depression, suicides and other such problems. <clears throat> and I remember they picked me up in the airport and I was driving there and I kind of said, well, what what do you grow? And they said, well, it's it's actually it's wheat, it's milk, it's cattle, it's uh you know, milk and meat, and uh, it's uh, it's um, sugar beet. And of course, uh, what we do is we extract the sugar out of the beet and feed it to the humans who get all fat and thick and uh, and the excellent trimethylglycine, uh, which is left in the beet. That's beet is betaine. If some of you have heard of betaine hydrochloride, uh, or betaine, which is trimethylglycine. That's the, the methyl groups that the brain really needs. So we we leave the best stuff for the animals and extract the worst stuff and give it to the humans. So yeah, it was a very uh, it was a very interesting conversation about how that was occurring, and it also reminded me of the story of a wonderful man who died recently, Dr. Malcolm Carruthers, and he was uh, one of the world's experts on the andropause. And it turned out that the farmers uh, who had the most problems with enlarged breast tissue uh, and also breast cancer were the uh, the chicken farmers uh, who were, uh, you know, more hormones uh, for chickens means bigger breasts and bigger breasts means more money. And I think the farmers had been eating their own produce and it was causing all sorts of problems. Well, Patrick, you know, we have the same problem with wheat. Mm. and making white flour where we throw away a third of the wheat kernel and give it to the pigs pigs mm. eat are better eating better than we are so mm. that's it's it's not only <laughs> sugar beets so <laughs> now, let's talk about this animal vegetable relationship because uh you know we have a, a lot of movement towards uh you know veganism but on a farm in the world of growing uh, what is that relationship do we need animals in relation to the world of plants and vegetables Oh, I, I definitely think so. I think that they are a big advantage. If you look at nature, so what I tell my friends, if, if, the, if you want to have the, the most successful regenerative organic system, be as close and mimic as close as you can the nature around you. And if you look at nature, it's completely diversified. You've got all kinds of diversification in plants, above the soil, roots below the soil, the micro, microbes below the soil, the little animals, the worms, the insects and all that, the birds above it, the animals that are on it, um, all those are adding and taking from that system. And it works in a perfect harmony and unity for eons. And if we can farm like that um, and use animals as part of that uh, rotation and, and um, system, I think everything benefits. When you take animals and you put them in feedlots and you feed them you know, chemicals and, and force feed them to fatten them, then you run into trouble, I think, with uh, uh, a lot of the trouble that's created with uh, meat today. And yet it didn't start out that way. It's just the same with the seeds we talked about. You're changing some basic um, factors of how things are grown, and the result is disease and ill health. Tim, do you have animals on your farm? I don't have animals, uh, but I agree with what Bob said. It, it's, it's mimicking nature, and nature never grows monocrops. Um, you know, my or, or organic matters are going up by 0.2%. Um, and I, I incorporate some sheep, but 
I'm a big advocate of, of pasture-fed beef and pasture-fed lamb, pasture-fed chickens, because you don't get the, the carbon problems when you're feeding animals uh, naturally. It's only when you get this intensive system that all of a sudden we've got all this methane and carbon problem with, with the factory-fed beef. And I, I'm a big advocate for pasture-fed livestock because it's just eating meat as nature intended it to grow. It hasn't been force-fattened. It's a lot healthier product for us, and we don't need that much of it. And it's just respecting that animal that's doing a job for us. So do you need to bring in manure? No, I do it all with the cover crops. So I, I'm, I'm mimicking what nature does by growing the cover crops, and then I get a nice compostable mulch on top of the ground, and that's that's that, that's the food for my, for my underground livestock. So I've got loads of livestock, but they're all subground rather than above ground. And by growing those cover crops, I'm providing them with that liquid carbon through exudates through the roots. And then as that starts to break down, as that, that plant comes to the end of its life, that gets eaten and the whole thing is being cycled again. So it's it's all about feeding my livestock below ground in my system. So you're, you're a, a, a compost king, really. And, yes. <laughs> and we have a we have an organic king here in the UK. Uh, you know, uh, King Charles, a tremendous promoter of organic. And actually, my friend Craig Sams uh, helped to broker the deal with uh, uh, the Dutchie brand supplying Waitrose organic food. And he's very, very big into carbon and biochar and uh, making this uh, carbon friendly uh, uh, charcoal product that helps to enrich the soil and make the topsoil. Is there a role for that, or are you doing doing all that anyway with the way that you're um, using these cover crops and not tilling? As it happens, Patrick, I'm doing some trials with biochar this time. So uh, ask me this time next year, or ask me in September, and I'll tell you the results I'm getting. So uh, I'm going to run some trials with it. I do an awful lot of trials every year for loads of things because that's how we learn. And if I share that data, everybody can move forward. Every farmer should be doing trials and sharing, and we can all move the whole system forward so much. We've got so much to learn. I always think that last century was the chemical century, and this century will be the biological century. You know, we can't use food production and a growing population as an excuse to pollute the planet anymore. We've got to start and look after it. Yeah, I live in Wales and uh, there's a lot of sheep, but there's a lot of complaining sheep farmers because they're really making no money out of their sheep uh, because the sheep coming from New Zealand are, are much cheaper and it kind of makes no sense to me. I mean, there must be a lot of, I wonder if only there was some sort of carbon tax, it's got to be more expensive to ship meat half the way around the world rather than eat them locally. What's, uh, I think it's yeah. ludicrous to bring any anything halfway around the world. It's the amount of soya we import in this country when we could be growing lupins. That's what I grow lupins for. They're nearly as good a protein source as soya, yet we could grow it here. But the problem mm -hmm. is the processors won't buy the lupins until there's enough farmers growing it, and the farmers won't grow it until there's enough processors that want to buy it. And we just keep on going on and destroying the planet by importing food halfway around the world. It's just ludicrous. Yeah, that's the usual argument that, you know, that you can't really be organic, you know, people who have, uh, you know, pigs and animals and so on, because the soya uh, is, is you know, organic soya is incredibly expensive. But what you're saying is grow the lupins, make your own protein in effect. Yes, definitely. Lupins are such a good source of protein. I mean, the, the white lupin is so sweet. It's, it's what's in all the, the French patisserie that gives it that nice golden glow. It's the lupin flower. So 
it's it's just getting people and encouraging them to grow it so as we can have our own grown protein rather than putting down rainforests to demand more protein when we could be growing our own. So Monty Python was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hand yeah. me your lupins, I think was the line, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Very good. Well, we're coming to the end now, and I would love to ask both of you just to wrap up and say, you know, your your kind of final message on this subject of uh, of the uh, soil, food, gut, brain, super highway. So, Bob, what are your closing words? Well, I always people always hit me up with organic is so expensive, but I ask them, well, how how much does it cost to be sick? Um, in this country, the the cost of 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 health care and or sick care, whatever you want to call it, and pills and all that sort of stuff, plus the cost of um, food has been unchanged for 60 years, the, 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 the total of those. But yet, um, how each of them forms that total is completely reversed. Food has gone from 18% of our income uh, expenditures down to nine, eight or nine, and and uh, medicine and pills and health care have gone from eight or nine up to 18 or 19. And I think it's a lot more fun to be well and pay a little money, uh, more money up front and save a lot on the back end of your life. Um, everybody can be a part of the solution is what I'd like to end with by just buying one more regenerative uh, uh, reduction of chemicals or organic products in your grocery store. Every time you go shopping, you don't need to make a hundred percent conversion all at once for everybody, but just, just do a little. And if we all did a little every year, a little more, then we would change the needle. We would swing the needle back to a healthy food system, a healthy um, planet and a healthy population. And that's what I'd like to see. Fantastic. Tim, your closing words. Um, we are what we eat. You know, choose carefully what you eat. Demand a regen-produced product, and look. And if the store isn't isn't supplying it, ask them why. Because the more energy we can put into this, the faster we can turn things around. And uh, it, it, you don't need to buy as much food when you've got nutrient-rich food, because the body's craving that that nutrition. And if it gets it, you, you don't have to buy as much food. So I agree with what Bob says. You know, it isn't expensive really, because you can't afford to be sick. So demand a nutrient-rich food that's regen produced and do your bit in, in healing this planet in which we live. And uh, let's have a planet for generations to come. And if there's farmers listening who want to find out more, Tim, is there a website they can go to? Uh, yeah, I'm quite uh, well known on uh, on Google, on social media. So uh, you can look me out and, and get in touch by all means. Yeah. That's Tim Parton and Bob. Uh, how about you? You've written a book, haven't you? I have called Grain by Grain, and you can um, go online and find it in your closest bookstore I, all over the world. I hope it's all over the world. <laughs> I have no idea. It was published by Island Press in Washington, D.C. We we published it in 1919 and have had a very successful and uh, fun run with it. And, uh, in, and, and if both of you just have a book that you could recommend, this is really for the public, for people to kind of wake up. Because I just read the book, um, uh, What Your Food Ate uh, by Montgomery. That was really interesting. But do you have a couple of favorite titles to help people uh, gen up or regen up regenerative farming? I think mine, mine would be yeah, his first book, Patrick, David Montgomery's first book called Dirt. Mm -hmm. uh, and it just shows in that book how every civilization that's failed in the history of this planet 
has failed because they didn't look after their soil. The Roman army couldn't feed their, their soldiers, so they had to disband. And we're on exactly that same path at the moment unless we start and turn things around. So that would be my first recommendation. Well, thank you both. Uh, this was really uh, a fabulous conversation. And uh, food, of course, is uh, we're made of food. It's as simple as that. And if I had a parting word, it would be, yes, pay a lot of attention to what you put in your mouth because it's going to change how you think and how you feel. And also, I would say, be grateful. Uh, you know, that whole act of grace, really. You know, the food we eat becomes us. So I hate to see food wasted. Uh, it's such a precious commodity. It is who we are. And I'm going to tell you, I spent some time in India on in a mobile hospital and uh, uh, helping treat vitamin deficiencies and so on. And I collected the stories of the sages, the sadhus uh, who, who died. I was very interested in how they died. And the one I really loved died in the 1930s. And he was called Zipruana, uh, nearly always naked you know, a little bit crazy. And uh, my my meditation teacher, Muktananda, came up to him and he said, let's face it, Muktananda, the human body is a bag of shit and piss, but the real filth is in the mind. <laughs> I like that. And then uh, when it came to his time to die, he knocked on the door of an old lady and he said, give me a bath and give me dinner. And his last act was to wash his body. And then he fed his body and he looked her straight in the eye and said, Zipruana's off now. You can cry all you like, but it won't make any difference. And he died. <laughs> that was it. So we're going to end this podcast uh, with my latest track. It's a little hip hop number, and it's called Fight the Flower. Yeah, fight the flower. Yeah, fight the flower. Real food matters, the nation's getting fatter Stop white supremacy, brown bread matters Don't sweeten up the kids, they already sweet Put your hands in the end, follow the beat Fight the flower, uh, uh, fight the flower Yeah, fight the white, uh, uh, fight the flower Yeah, fight the white, uh-huh, uh-huh, fight the flower Yeah, fight the flower, uh-huh, uh-huh, fight the flower yeah. Stop eating junk and empty calories Food is what you're made of, body masterpiece Brain starts shrinking, serotonin sinking Diabetes and dementia is coming at you In your genes, no drug gon' save you It's how you live, even prayers can't help you No girl, no love, no self-esteem This medicine industry's a motherfucking scheme Big egg, big food, big tech, big pharma Knew a bad bitch and a name is karma Getting you addicted to drugs to make big bucks It just ain't cool to sell drugs no, it really sucks Upgrade the terrain Your body knows best Please eat the good food And don't touch the rest Stop factory farming Shit ass food Eating that stuff Will have your brain barbecued Fight the power Uh, uh Fight the power Yeah Fight the power Uh, uh Fight the power Yeah Fight the power Uh, uh, uh Fight the power Yeah Fight the power Uh, uh, uh Fight the power yeah. What did your food eat? It starts in the soil. Mother Nature knows best. Bow down, she's royal. Get on the soil, food, gut, brain, super highway. That's the right way. Don't they got your own grave? With a fork and a knife, get wise, get a life. Say no to drugs, they won't save you. You gotta save yourself, they don't give a damn. They the Joker, and I'm Batman. Don't trust the government, it's part of the mafia. Getting you hooked on the pills.
just a zombie fire That's why healthcare is failing, no prevention The curses in the food, which they just don't mention Join the revolution, wise up, eat smarter Don't become a victim of the big pharma Prevention is the cure, but where's the profit? You're the only one who can save you, you gotta get on it Fight the flower, uh, uh, fight the flower Yeah, fight the flower, uh-huh, uh-huh Fight the flower, yeah, fight the flower